and the words that we have, including the words of the Buddha, are a kind of faint echo of that great silence. But it's what we have, and there's a reason for it. The words at a certain point uh, are, can be experienced as so unsatisfying in terms of the disparity between experience and even the most beautifully turned phrase. And yet there's a place for, for words. There has to be because we don't start with the great silence. We start with the great noise. And we live in a world and our mind is filled with sounds and words. From books and from people and from the media now. And we have to start there. And so clear and useful words that at least point us in the direction of the great silence have always been valued, have been protected, have been transmitted. And the practice that we're exploring together during these days, which comes from a teaching of the Buddha called the Anapanasati, Sutta, that is a teaching on the full awareness of breathing, or it's sometimes translated as mindfulness with breathing, or mindfulness of the in and out, uh, of in and out breathing. There are a number of options, but what remains steady is it seems to have something to do with breath and something to do with mindfulness. And what I'd like to do is tonight uh, read just a little bit from this Sermon of the Buddha and begin to give you a, a sense of what we're doing, why we're doing it. Some of what I'll be reading to you I think will be familiar. You're doing it. And to take selected pieces of this teaching during the week. We couldn't possibly cover the whole thing. We could, but it would become, I think, too intellectual. But I want to take particular pieces and give them a, a totally practice-oriented slant. Uh, as the retreat unfolds, we'll see what we should talk about. The occasion for what the Buddha was uh, for the Buddha's words, was a three-month retreat, the end of it. Um, a group of meditators, yogis like ourselves, 2,500 years ago. And apparently the retreat went very well. The Buddha decided to stay an extra month. And more yogis from around India came to join in. But here's a little bit of what was said in I'll bring it to what we're what we're doing and the, and where we're moving. The method of being fully aware of breathing. By the way, before I go further, I know that there are a fair number of you who are new 
to this practice, to IMS, to retreats, uh, talks, perhaps you already know this, but some of you may not, talks are not uh, treated in the same way as, let's say, a, a lecture. So if you're thinking of taking notes, please don't. It's silly, finally. Uh, but it's also not about accumulating a lot of information and also strengthening your likes and dislikes. But actually, it's another opportunity to practice, practice listening. See if you can just listen. And you can hear your mind lose interest, gain interest, disagree, agree, get annoyed, be inspired, whatever it is you go through. Move with all of that. And all of that is much more important than remembering the details. After all, what I'm saying is easily accessible. It's now all over the place in paperback, so it's waiting for you when you leave. But practice listening. I'm practicing listening, too, because when you speak, at least when I speak, I try to hear what I'm saying. And sometimes what I'm saying doesn't stand up, and I have to retract it or modify it, and sometimes... Well, to the best of my ability, it seems okay, so I'll keep going. The method of being fully aware of breathing, if developed and practiced continuously, will have great rewards and bring great advantages. It will lead to success in practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. I'll say a bit about that in a moment. If the method of the four foundations of mindfulness is developed and practice continuously, it will lead to success in the practice of the seven factors of awakening. The seven factors of awakening, if developed and practiced continuously, will give rise to understanding and liberation of the mind. What is the way to develop and practice continuously the method of full awareness of breathing so that the practice will be rewarding and offer great benefit? It is like this. The yogi goes into the forest or to the foot of a tree or to any empty dwelling and sits stably with crossed legs, holding the body quite straight and arouses mindfulness. Ever mindful, the yogi breathes in. Ever mindful, the yogi breathes out. Does that sound familiar? So we're starting uh, in the very same place that, I don't know, I'm sure thousands of people before us have begun. And uh, and the truth is, this breathing in and breathing out is the core of the whole thing, because if you, everything else is strung around it, as you'll see. We've been doing that, right? You've heard us remind you to breathe in and breathe out mindfully. And you've heard us suggest that, of course, your mind will wander away and please come back without blame. And, you know, for some of you, especially those from Cambridge, it's a litany. You've heard it many, many times. Don't let it get mechanical, though, because it's still true.
I think I feel a little bit self-conscious. Some of the people in here have heard me say some of these things so many times. But to kind of help myself out of my own self-consciousness, I had a, uh, a Zen teacher many years ago, and we brought him to Cambridge every five, every Friday evening for about ten weeks. And about the eighth or ninth week, and he would give these talks and to people in the Cambridge area, finally someone, very annoyed, raised his hand and said, you've been saying the same thing for nine weeks now. And so the teacher leaned forward, this fellow was sitting in the first row, and looked at me and said, that's true. He said, have you done it yet? <laughs> so this is just for the old timers. If you're, if you're a little bit jaded, don't get cocky. You still have to breathe in, you still have to breathe out. <laughs> so right off, we're, it's a place is suggested, and the empty dwelling is here for us. This would be comparable. This was an empty room, and we filled it up. And it's set up to help us do this. It could have been a forest or a cave, but this is where we're doing it. And we're attempting to sit cross-legged, with our spine erect. And what I'd like to suggest is that the first four contemplations of this sutra uh, enrich us in many ways if you practice them. But one of the main ways in which they do has to, has to do with acquiring a seat. And I'll explain what that is. You probably think you already have one, right? The Chinese, the ancient Chinese, used this phrase, acquiring the seat. Maybe a better term would be uh, establishing or creating. But just plopping your butt down on the cushion or on a chair or on a bench, it's a nice beginning, but we have a ways to go. And finally, I hope you'll see that it isn't just about the body. In order to really acquire a seat, requires real interest in how the mind is doing. Um, with the in and out breath and the posture, we begin. And what is it intended here is the very beginnings of calming and concentrating the mind. In other words, if you, the mind thousands of years ago and the mind now, in one sense, is the identical mind. Wild. You read ancient texts, the people don't sound any different than ourselves. Minds that are all over the place. And they use images like uh, the mind is like a drunken monkey uh, jumping from one branch to another endlessly in search of bigger and better bananas. <laughs> it's not too bad. And that helped me, but actually Another image helped me more because it came out of my own experience. One day with some friends, um, we were all talking and they had a dog and they had this plastic bone that had sort of flesh painted on it. And the owner would throw the, this plastic bone with a fake, you know, just 
flesh-colored painted on it, a little bulge as if it was meat. Throw it, and the dog would just run after it and come back with it, bring it back, and then it would get thrown again and again and again. And at a certain point, that became more interesting to me than our conversation. I just was watching in disbelief. I mean, of course I had seen this many times before. But somehow this time it, was, it struck me in a different way. I just saw this dog running time and time again after something that had no nourishment. There was no meat. There was no blood. There was not whatever it is that dogs like about bones, or at least they used to, I think. This had none of it. It was just plastic. It didn't seem to stop the dog. Obviously, it was some other food that the dog was getting. But it struck me that I was watching my mind externalized in the shape of a doggy. Uh, I had been practicing for a while, even then, and um, like the monkey image, if you watch your mind, you'll see that you know, I'm sure, even if you're very new to meditation, if you've just been here for a few days, it's constantly running after something, grabbing onto it. The challenge is to, for the mind to become more like a lion or a tiger, which doesn't go running after every little odd and end, odds and end stuff that people throw. They just sit and look at you as if you're an idiot, or, they're, or see you as food, <laughs> or want to know where it came from. The point is, they're not pushed around. To begin with, our mind is. It falls for everything. It runs after everything. It's exhausting, unfulfilling, and yet we can't have enough of it. So to just sit in a stable cross-legged position and notice the in and out breath may sound like not much. But because it's so utterly simple, of course what happens is it makes the wildness of the mind stand out in relief. It becomes so obvious that our mind is wild. You can't miss it. And it has nothing particularly to do with how responsible your job is. You could be a brain surgeon or president of the United States. If you sit down, probably you're, I'm pretty sure of this, but you know, we'll allow for a little bit of mystery. The mind is wild. And the simple breath, coming back to it over and over again, flushes that out. At which point, we have a choice. We can get discouraged and figure, this is hopeless. My mind is just uh, never going to settle down. Or we can see it as learning. And this sutra, as I think all the sutras, are really, uh, what they're emphasizing are lessons to be learned about living, about the lawfulness of nature, particularly our own nature. And so we begin to see it not so much as, as an occasion for condemnation, but to understand that, my goodness, this is the way the mind is. Unless we do something with it, I have no control over this mind. And it keeps running after things that, if you look carefully, and if you've been sitting after a while, it just, it's hard to miss. A lot of what it runs after it doesn't bring peace or fulfillment. It just brings more and more vexation. And yet we do it again and again and again. And silence is not something that we've been brought up to think of as very important, except now and then. 
in other words, a calm, clear, quiet mind, is not part of the educational curriculum, as far as I know, for all of us. What we're brought up to do is to use that mind, but the mind itself is not looked at. And so, with the in and out breath, as we become more skillful doing that, as more and more we see that with practice and patience and gentleness and the help of our friends, little by little, um, the mind settles down. We're not trying to break its spirit. Just gradually, little by little, the mind learns uh, to go to the breath. It isn't taken in so easily by all the images that are thrown up by, the, by, by itself. Essentially, the mind throws up these images and then it runs. It's as if the dog throws the bone and runs after it itself. It's a one-person show. We're doing it to ourselves. Have you seen it that way yet? It's not coming from heaven. It's coming from our mind. We're doing it. And then we get caught and then we talk as if it's somewhere else, someone else, something else. But here it is. Couldn't be closer to us. Little by little, the mind even learns that it's wonderful to come back to the breath. Like a pleasant surprise. I've been chasing all, after all these plastic bones with fake flesh on them, when all the while I just had to sit here quietly, be with my breathing, which somehow takes me somewhere inside to a place that's quite fulfilling, quite full of joy and peace, seems to help me when I get up from the cushion to do all kinds of things that are necessary in, in my life. It takes a while, even after we taste some of the joys of stillness and of a concentrated mind. It's as if we need to be constantly encouraged and edged and even pushed a little bit and gather together like this to encourage one another to do it, to do something that's really in our own best interest, to make a very fair exchange trade in all that stuff, that plastic bone, for well-being, for peace, for a joy that seems to come from within, that doesn't seem to have to do with how we're treated by the world or how the world sees us, or what our fortunes are in the world. It seems to be something that's built into us as humans. When the mind gets very quiet, it's happy. So the Buddha moves on. He's gotten us launched. Uh, we move into, move from uh, the simple, the simplicity of the in and out breath to breathing in a long breath. The yogi knows, I'm breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, the yogi knows, I'm breathing out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, the yogi knows, I'm breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, the yogi knows, I'm breathing out a short breath. Quite naturally, even if you 
didn't hear these the teachings, these words, if you follow the in-breath and out-breath enough, you start to get to know the world of breathing. You become more intimate with it, more familiar with it. And you begin to see that no two breaths are the same. The breath is a universe of interest, of all kinds of subtle nuances. And quite significant, these nuances aren't meaningless. They seem to be very delicate and sensitive indicators of the condition of both the mind and the body. They can be indicators of our physical health and so forth. But in a teaching of this sort, what all these sutras are doing, after all, it began from the mind of the Buddha. Then, at first, it was not put down in writing. It was memorized. So the words were kept alive. Then these words were put on palm leaves. And palm leaves became books and now, you know, CD-ROM or whatever. Um, But now those words uh, transferred into our mind. And that's the beginning. But then those words have to take us back to the mind from which they originated. That's the whole point. The ancients often memorized these sutras. That was often necessary because there wasn't printing. Now that's not the case, of course. Now sometimes that practice of memorizing developed strong samadhi, strong motivation, and really contributed to the practice. But I, based on my own experience, travels and so forth, very often what it leads to is a dead end. You just know every. You simply know everything because you've memorized uh, all the words of the Buddha. The next step is for these words to take you back to the source from which they came, and that source is us. Our experience and the Buddha's experience are the same. It's the same mind. That's what being said. Buddhas and sentient beings are the same. One image that was used is like ice cubes and water, or ice and water. When ice is melted down, we see that its original nature is water. So we're a little frozen, and the practice is a kind of meltdown. So do you see the the direction that we're moving in? That is... um, To me, a balanced practice is you don't have to know all of the teachings of the Buddha, certainly not. You do have to know the basic principles, and sometimes it's helpful to get them in a few of these key teachings. But then they have to become your own. Right now, it's secondhand knowledge. It's just borrowed. We're borrowing it from someone. When learning is done correctly, what happens is these words then get translated into action, and the action produces fruit, which vindicate the words and gives them life and meaning. You understand they're not dead. They're not just merely words. They really do point at something. They're an echo of the great silence. All of these 
I would say all spiritual teachings are like that. It's not unique to Buddhism. So what is going on here is that in the, these first two contemplations, and I'm certain that all of you, all of us in this room have, uh, even if you have turned up here for the first time, you're beginning to see that the breath is quite a, uh, there's quite a bit of variety to breathing. Sometimes it's great joy just to sit quietly and breathe, and sometimes it isn't. And so here what the Buddha is doing is encouraging us to get to know the breath more intimately. Long and short breath is a code word for the quality of the breathing. It's not meant to stop at just long and short. Those are the easiest ones to see. If I ask you right now, is your breath long or short, you got quiet and looked, probably be pretty easy to see. And as you uh, continue to look, you'll see the nuances, which are, can be much more subtle, but which are just as real. And as the practice develops and matures, the breath becomes exquisitely subtle and refined. And even there you can see that the breath changes from moment to moment and is a kind of yogic thermometer telling us about ourselves, sometimes more directly than the mind itself, that we're really angry, even though we don't know it, or we're really sad. And then maybe ten minutes later we find that out in content. The breath doesn't lie. It doesn't know how to. Okay, so, so far, um, what these two teachings are suggesting is what we've been doing. The qualities of the breathing are, are interesting. That is, uh, let me suggest a use for them. It's not for you from here on in to bear down on your breathing and try to each moment give a kind of a printout, you know, of how each breath is. Not at all, just pay attention. Uh, but from time to time, especially if you're sleepy, if you feel a bit dull, there are many ways to perk the mind up. One way is to give it a little bit more to do. There are other methods in the Vipassana tradition that suggest things like watch more points, like touch points of the body and parts of the, parts of the body. Here, if you just give you just accentuate the attention just a wee bit for a few minutes, so that you really are seeing the beginnings and endings of each breath and also the quality of the breath, sometimes, because you're asking the mind to do a little bit more, it perks up, it, it generates some energy. Uh, as long as you don't do it uh, and overdo it, and then you'll create strain and uh, actually become more tired. Okay, so, so far, so good. The practice has been exclusively on breathing. But now we move into, I'm going to read to you three and four. I don't know if we'll finish tonight, but I want to give you a sense of what's going on here. That uh, I'm afraid these simple sentences can't do. 
when we move to the third, it says, I'm breathing in and I'm aware of my whole body. I'm breathing out and I'm aware of my whole body. This is how the yogi practices. Can you see a, an important difference now? We're not, you know, in terms of how the instructions are going, uh, although informally, of course, you've gotten to know that you have a body as you're breathing, right? If nothing else, when the body is uncomfortable, at least it reminds you that you have one. So, you know, so we've been doing it anyway. But there actually is a specific contemplation where, which you ripen into. That is just as you ripen from the simple in and out breathing to the qualities of the breath, as you're more ready to do that, as the mind becomes more calm, more concentrated, quite naturally, it's able to practice in what you could call a more comprehensive way. So that the breath remains, in this particular method, the breath remains throughout. But now you, you're uh, widening the field. It's more global, panoramic, comprehensive, all-inclusive. Not all-inclusive, because we haven't included mind states. They'll come later. But now as we breathe, we're very interested in the life of the body. So that it becomes a breathing body. Now, if I read the fourth to you, it says, I'm breathing in and making my whole body calm and at peace. I'm breathing out and making my whole body calm and at peace. This is how the yogi practices. It's not that you really are, I think I have to change that wording a little, it's not that you're really trying to make the body be calm, it's that as you attend to the breathing and your ability to do that develops, the quality of the breath changes. The breath becomes more calm. And the breath is a very powerful conditioner of the body. That is, you're indirectly guiding the body to become much more calm, much more at peace, much more comfortable. But you don't do it by going directly to the body. You do it by working with the breath, because the breath is a very powerful conditioner. It's so obvious. When we're born, right, we're born with a breath. If there's some hesitation, you get slapped, and then you start breathing again. You cry, and everyone's happy. And then at a certain point, the breathing stops, and it's all over. So, obviously, this particular aspect of existence has a powerful effect on life itself. Uh, we're studying somewhere between birth and death, but it's still very much uh, an expression of the life force, that which makes everything we're doing possible. It's prior to all of that. It's primordial. It's basic. So as we come to know the breathing, we come to know all the different shades of difference, the different qualities of breathing, we then uh, enlarge the field you can't help but get to know the body because the breath and the body are so interrelated. The breath is part of the body. And as this develops, as your ability to stay with the breathing, to experience it in the context of the body, 
quite natural you'll find that the body starts to settle down. And the fourth contemplation, you could say, remember, these are all schemes for clarifying something that is much more fluid. Life is much more complex than any of these uh, teaching schemes, even for the Buddha, clear as, clear as those teachings are. But just to, as an exposition of what it is, acquiring a seat is that. If we now back up a bit. The contemplation of the body is what we're working on right now. This is the first foundation of the Satipatthana Sutra, the, found, the four foundations of mindfulness referred to by the Buddha. This is probably the most basic text, meditation text, in our practice, for our practice. Every teacher who teaches here uses some aspect of it. There's no way to teach Vipassana without, in some way, dipping into the Satipatthana Sutra. Because it's in it, the Buddha declares that it's possible to liberate yourself from sorrow and shows you in a very detailed way how to do that. And what he suggests is that you have to come to know the body. We're doing that. We're becoming more intimate, more familiar, more understanding of what it means to have a body. What is this body? As you breathe and as you pay attention, uh, even if you don't desire it, you can't help but learn a lot about the body. This is the first one, which we're working on now and will for a few days. And it's not that it goes away, because our body doesn't go away. It's just that in the scheme of teaching, the next one has to do with feelings, which I won't go into details about tonight. It's the same thing, though. Then we get to know the world of feelings. How we receive the sensory world. From moment to moment, all day long, we're experiencing that world as it comes in through all the sense doors as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then the mind itself, all the different moods and emotional states and uh, cravings and aversions and confusion and clarity and so forth. And then finally, the final foundation is, the, is insight, is pure vipassana. When we, in this sutra, we examine the lawfulness of it all. Okay, so we've begun that. We're staying with the body, and I'll help you uh, during the course of our retreat get a better sense of what I mean tonight. I'm just planting a few seeds, but it's about the whole person. Right now, let's limit it to the body. Try to imagine, just for the moment, a very healthy, strong tree with very deep roots in the ground. I know we're not trees, but we've all been in kindergarten, right? 1A. Or maybe there are a few poets here. When a storm comes, a tree that's healthy and strong and has deep roots has a much better chance of withstanding the storm because it's rooted. It may sway a lot, 
because it's not dead. It's pliable, it's supple, but it has deep roots, it's planted. And as a result, it survives the storm. There are many dimensions to this body contemplation, and we'll go into a few more, perhaps next time. But the one I'd like to emphasize tonight, because I feel that's what we're doing a lot of work with, these four, everything that I've said tonight, they're like, in a sense, stills of a, of a, of a process that's quite alive, and we've arrested it really in five places. We started with in and out, and then we moved to long and short, and then we moved to the whole body, and then we saw that the body uh, changes as the breath changes. Just let's, for the moment, take one facet of that image and understand that what we're doing is that as we develop this ability to breathe consciously, that has consequences. Of course the mind calms down. Right now we're more interested in the body, but the mind calms down. And so does the body. What happens is there's a unification of the mind, the body, and the breath. That unification comes about by means of the breathing. That is, the breath is common to both. It's kind of uh, situated between mind and body. And as we learn how to be with the breathing, that trinity becomes unified. The mind, the breath, and the body become one. Can you get a sense of the stability that that might be like? Now, it's not simply a matter of sitting in the full lotus with an erect spine. Probably there are some very supple people who could be trained to do that. Because the storm that we're concerned with is not the snowstorm or windstorm, but emotional storms. And so, some of what we're accomplishing, there's more, but some of what we're accomplishing in working with the body and the breath this way, is we're helping to create, to establish a body, a seat, a genuine seat. Finally, it's about the minds. The mind is sitting. It's not really the body, but we have a body. And it's an important part of that foundation. Uh, can you imagine, let's say, if you, for those of you who are rather new and maybe you haven't had some, too many stable moments sitting on the cushion, perhaps some of you have been practicing for a while have, let's say fear comes up or loneliness or some deep sorrow, a loss. It's difficult for all of us to turn to that and be mindful of it directly can be learned, and that's why we're here. But can you imagine if, that if you had a, the physical foundation was stable? It's not just sitting like a picture postcard. It's that the body is stable because of all these developments that we've been talking about. It may even have pain, although it definitely learns how to sit. It gets more comfortable. Sitting becomes e easier. You can sit for longer periods of time. But it's also possible for there to be physical pain. If you have a body, there are no guarantees. I'm not suggesting some Hollywood ending, that if you do this, that you'll never have physical pain again. But what I am saying is that as the mind and body come together, many of us are alienated from our bodies, or have rather 
problematic relationship to our body, too preoccupied with it, not concerned with it enough. As all that becomes established and unified, we have a physical foundation as a support for the mind to rest in stability and from that place of strength to examine itself. 